This is a man in the Sepak Ewam tribe of Papua New Guinea. This man is a Christian, as is most of the people in his tribe. There's about 5,000 members of the Sepak Ewam tribe today in 2021 on the island of Papua New Guinea. And it is one of the most reached people groups in the whole world. 99% of their tribe and their people group that all speak the same language are followers of Jesus. In fact, this year, they will send out on foot missionaries to other tribes in the jungle on the island of Papua New Guinea. They're united, they're connected, they commune together around the table of Jesus as we do, and almost 100% of them follow Jesus. But just 50 years ago, just five decades ago, the population of Christians among this tribe was zero. Zero. Just five short decades. The age of Larry Smith. <laughs> he told me he's 50 today. Five decades ago. So what happened? I mean, that's got to be an incredible story, right? Well, God sent 50 years ago a young lady in her 20s, a school teacher named Marilyn Laszlo and her friend Judy to this tribe. Marilyn always had felt that her life was going to be centered around the mission of God. In fact, she would say from an early age, the earliest dream she can ever remember having at night was her life going on a mission trip. At five years old, she would dream of being a missionary. Her life literally began with a mission. More about Marilyn here in a moment, but let's be reminded of Genesis. Genesis 1 through 11, the prologue to the whole book of the Bible, or the whole Bible, all the 66 books, is a story that starts with a mission. It all begins with a mission, and it starts like this. God creates the universe. He creates all things, and it's good. And to the first family, he gives his mission. He says to them in Genesis 1, 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. That's mission language. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and every living creature that moves on the ground. Subdue and rule are not words of authority through might. They are authority through God and continuing his goodness. The original mission of God given to the first humans was to bless the earth. Continue the goodness that is already there. Create, make it better, show the world as representatives, as image bearers, who God is. But when we fast forward this through the story and get to chapter six, instead of filling it with goodness, we find that humanity has filled it with this. You have this one sentence, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and instead of full of goodness, it is now full of violence. 
That happens very quickly from chapters 3 to 6. Adam and Eve choose their wisdom over God, saying, we will take the fruit when we want, how we want. We want what we can't have. Then it moves to family, and Cain kills Abel. And then in this strange passage at the first of Genesis chapter 6, the sons of God, who are heavenly beings, rebel against God and come to earth and take daughters of men. From the first three chapters of, or first two chapters of goodness, now from chapters three, four, five, and six, humanity has gone from one sin into communal sin, into the whole earth being filled with violence. So in response to this, like we talked about last week, God partners with Noah, a righteous man who would obey God's word, and he floods the earth. He cleanses it of its violence, and he starts over with a new family. But if you pay careful attention to chapters 9 and 10, it's not long before evil again has its way. The three sins that were repeated by are started by Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and by the sons of God are repeated again before chapter 11. Noah comes off the boat, plants a vineyard, a garden, right? Hint, hint, Eden, he plants a garden. That's the first thing he does. But what's he do with the garden? He takes fruit, gets drunk. Then his sons sin against him in some mysterious way. And then by the time we get to chapter 10 and 11, you see evil organizing again. There's a repeat. Same song, different verse. Genesis 1 through 11 is telling us that evil has a way of organizing, of moving from person to people to family to tribe to group to nation. And that's where we're at when we open today Genesis 10 and especially 11. It's a story about a nation and a people and a tower and a language that are trying to do something for themselves. And it begins in a weird place. We think the Tower of Babel story begins there with the heading, Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, right? But it actually starts back in everybody's favorite Bible reading section in the genealogy of Genesis 10. Now, this is strange but important, but you're supposed to be reading along with this and if you're a Bible reader and you read Genesis 10, you're going to read about Ham and Shem and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and who their sons and grandsons were. But then in the middle of this, in the genealogy of Ham, you're going to hear this little story. The genealogy stops and you get a narrative about a guy named Nimrod. Let's read this. Cush was the father of Nimrod. Now, Cush is the son of Canaan, and Canaan is the son of Ham. Great name, Ham. So, tasty sandwich too. So, all right, Cush is the father of Nimrod, who became a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That's why it's said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. He had his own moniker, his own title. If you could hunt, you were like Nimrod. The first centers of his kingdom were Babylon, Uruk, Akkad, and Kenai, and Shinar. And from that land, he went to Assyria, where he built Nineveh and Rehoboth-ur, Kela and Rezin, which is between Nineveh and Kela, which is the great city. 
Now, here's what's supposed to happen with this. There's a lot of details, a lot of words that you're like, I don't, you know, we, we had this in class. Somebody just said they couldn't, uh, they couldn't pronounce a word today, so they just said J word. We have a lot of those in this section today, right? Like, I don't know what, I don't know what all this is. We're going to get into some of them, but what we need to hear is if you're reading Genesis 10, you should stop and say, okay, I was reading about a genealogy. Now I'm all of a sudden reading about Nimrod. And so you should ask the question this morning, why is this here? And why suddenly stop and tell us about this guy? And what's the significance about this guy building his kingdom named Babylon and Assyria and Nineveh? See, chapter 10 is not a random group of names. Actually, if you count all the names, there's 70 of them. It represents completion. It's the family of God. A family of God who was supposed to be united in serving God and making a name for God. But then there's this pause in verse 8 that says this family is once again going to take another turn. Instead of becoming something that honors God, they're going to become something else. And central to that story is Nimrod. Now hang with me for just a second more before we get into, into how this really gets, comes alive. But Nimrod is a great name. It is a name that means rebel. Not rebel for good or go against the status quo is what will be named later. The name Mary or Miriam in Old Testament, who Jesus' mother is Miriam or Mary. That means to rebel against the status quo. This one, Nimrod, means to rebel against the Almighty. To rebel. So this is our first hint about why he is central to the story of Babel. He is a rebel who's described as a hunter and a warrior, a mighty hunter. But that phrase means so much more. I know our guys that hunt are like, yeah, Nimrod, yeah, he... That's a good buck he got, you know? That's what we want to do. This is more than just he's got his own show on the hunting or outdoor channel, whatever it is. I want to call it the hunting channel. That's not a thing. The outdoor channel. Or he can survive on a loan or whatever it is. This is not a positive biblical phrase. This is not even close because this phrase mighty warrior has already been used in the Bible. It's already appeared, and it appears in Genesis 6, 4, when the author describes the sons of God who have children with the daughters of men, and they become the Nephilim. A heavenly rebellion against God creates mighty warriors. Now an earthly rebellion about a guy who's trying to build a tower to the heavens becomes synonymous with mighty warriors as well. You tracking with me? This is not a good title. Sorry, hunters out there. And hunt, do whatever you want, but don't be like, I'm like Nimrod, right? Don't do that, because this is not a good thing. This is a rebellion. So here is what's happening. I want us to see this story. This is a story of a man who rebels, who is living in the vein of the heavenly rebellion of chapter 6. Evil is starting to organize again. And they're going together in a valley and they're going to build a tower. And this story, while we think it's ancient and irrelevant, is maybe the most clear example of the continued story of man. 
The story that's been repeated over and over and over again. So let's walk to the tower and let's find out what happens. Genesis 11, 1 and 2. So we heard about Nimrod. Now we hear in Genesis 11, 1 and 2. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech as people moved eastward. They found a plain in Shinar and settled there. So here we got to pause for a second. I'm just, we're just going to take this piece by piece. Geography in the Bible matters. For us Western readers, we often read the Bible and we don't think about geography, but geography to an Eastern people, the original audience of this text, they pay attention. And there's something going on here because in the script, in the scripture, over and over, people continue to move east. East is a, it's a hint to say, here's what's going on. People are moving away. If you notice in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, when they're kicked out of the garden, when they're removed from the garden, they go east. When Cain murders his brother Abel, he goes and builds a city in the east. In the flood, if you look at the geography, the flood brings people back west, but then immediately we start moving east. Here, these people, this people group who we know from chapter 10 are led by Nimrod, they go east. And they not only go east, they land in a place called Shinar. Shinar is only mentioned twice in the Bible, but it has to do with the same thing. It's mentioned here in Genesis 11, and Shinar is mentioned again in Daniel chapter 3. It's the plain in Daniel where Nebuchadnezzar builds, guess what? a statue to himself with its head reaching to the heavens. There's something going on here. Don't you see this? What the first two verses of this text is asking is significant. Man, the Bible's good. It's so relevant to our lives. It's challenging us. This section is saying, which way are you trending? Which way is your life moving? Are you drifting east? Are you moving away from the Lord? I know this is way too Western of thinking, but if you were to plot your life and your relationship with God on a graph with close to God and far from God, in time, what would it look like? Or maybe just think about it as a map and God's in the center. Where would you plot yourself over the last year, six months, last week? Are you drifting east? Which way is your life trending? See, we're not static people. C.S. Lewis, in the book that many of you, I hope, have read, and if you haven't, pick this book up. His book, The Screwtape Letters, which is a, a fictional tale of what would it look like for one demon, a tempter of humans, to write letters mentoring a younger new demon. So Uncle Screwtape, in the book, writes to his nephew, Wormwood, 
And in one section, he says this brilliant line about tempting humans. To his nephew, he says, C.S. Lewis was brilliant. He puts it this way. He says, you will say that these very small sins, and remember, this is demon to demon, okay? You will say that these very small sins, these are very small sins. And doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness in your subject. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate man from the enemy who they call God. It does not matter how small the sins are, providing that they have a cumulative effect to edge the man away from the light and out into nothingness. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, the soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. People don't fall from God. They drift east. Where are you this morning? May we be a people who start to regain our center, who have an awareness of our relationship with God and we begin to move back towards his arms, to notice the signpost around us. See, Babel's towers are built when we drift. Let's pick up the story in verse three. These people gather in Shinar and notice what they say to each other. They said to each other, come let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. They said, come let us build for ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city the tower the people were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So these people, Nimrod's people, drift to the east and they settle and then they have an idea, an idea that God doesn't really agree with, but we often struggle with what part does he not agree with, and maybe we're against towers or we're against bricks, but this isn't a story about bricks and buildings. Yes, the story is about them understanding technology, right? This is a move in a technological way. You can imagine the early Steve Jobs, you know, coming out from behind with a big old Apple screen, and he goes, I present to you the iBrick, and everybody's like, oh, I gotta order one on ancientamazon.com, right? That's not what's going on. They don't have a problem with brick. What God has a problem with is much bigger. What's in the passage, what's going on here is they are making a name for themselves. See, the idea here is that they're making a tower, and tower is the Hebrew word for head, so really the text reads, let us make a head that reaches into the heavens. Let us exalt ourselves. Let us put ourselves in the clouds. Let us have equality 
with God. So God's problem isn't towers and bricks. God's problem is making a name that is not their name to make. They're building a building, but the building is not the problem. The problem is that they're trying to build a kingdom, the kingdom of me. Now think big with me. 30,000 foot view here for a little bit. Because this problem in the text, the kingdom of me, is not just a Babel problem, is it, church family? This isn't just something that happened years and thousands of years ago. This is our problem. This isn't just my problem or your problem. This is the human problem. Making a name for ourselves is what we do when we begin to evaluate and judge and elevate ourselves over and above others. Our way, my people, this culture, this name, this country is greater. That's what's happening. Nimrod is building the first empire. I find it interesting he not only builds Babel, which becomes Babylon, he also builds Assyria, which becomes the Assyrians, the first two countries after Egypt to crush the Israelites. But we do this. This is human history. In fact, human history, all the wars and all the murders and all the things that people have given their life for could be summed up in trying to build a name for ourselves. And that personal mission, that personal mission in kingdoms small, like my own home or my own life or my office, and in kingdoms large, among tribes and nations, that mission is the opposite of God's mission. God's mission wasn't ever to build a kingdom of me's, but a kingdom of people who belong to God. So God's going to act. And this is so relevant to us today, and I don't even really have to ask the question, do I? Because it goes back to the question, are you drifting? Because if you're drifting, you're building a kingdom of me. Or if vice versa, if you're building a king of me, kingdom of me, guess what you've already done? You've drifted. If all your decisions are selfish, welcome to Nimrod land. If all you do is think about how do I get ahead, welcome to the theme of Babel. If all we're doing is thinking about how we are better than others and our way is the God way, instead of humbling ourselves to find the God way, welcome to Babel. God does something about this. But what God does is probably not what you Expect him to do. Here's what he does. Verses 8 and 9. So they've built this thing, and God responds. He comes down. That's, that's imagery of, this is what God does in, in Genesis 3 too. He comes down to see the people. This is what he does here too. He comes down. That's language of God walking among the people. This is, this is the Shekinah. This is the glory of God showing up on earth. This is what's called a theophany, when God's presence shows up on earth, which is a lot more common than we think it is. But he's there. So here's what happens. He comes down, he sees what they've done. In verse eight it says, so the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth. They were gathered, he scatters, and they stopped building the city. That's why it's called ba Babel. 
Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. And there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Quite a move by God, right? Often we've probably thought about this as punishment. That God sees the people and they're, they're able to accomplish something and maybe he, he, they're building it up. And as a kid, I remember reading this story thinking, well, maybe God was threatened by this tower. They were gonna reach him in the heavens or something and be like him. But that's not what's going on. God's not threatened by their tower. He's not like, well, you know, the Sears Tower was just tall enough and, you know, you know now the Burj Khalifa, that's just a little high. He's, he's not doing that. What he's doing is, is he's saying, you guys have gone off mission. You're trying to elevate yourself. And so this isn't punishment. Think about it this way. His response to the tower is to change their languages. This is not a punishment. It is a challenge. It's a challenge. It's a severe mercy People making a name for themselves will only learn how to make a name for other people or how to be back on mission if their context is changed. So God changes their language. He confuses them. It's a challenge. I love that phrase. This is a severe mercy. As he sees them drift, as he sees them moving off mission, they are not being a blessing. They're settling they're making a name for themselves and God will not let them settle in a misdirected place, building misdirected kingdoms because if they stay in this place, they'll be stuck there in this broken kingdom forever. So God gives them a severe mercy. What do I mean by that? Stop rambling, Jake. Tell us what you mean. Here's what I mean. What's the only way to get them back on mission? It's a way we get back to our center. What's the only way for this group of people who now all speak different languages to learn how to get along, to learn how to share, to learn how to serve? Well, to learn somebody else's language, you have to put yourself where? In the nature of a servant. If I'm going to learn Spanish, I better stop thinking that my language everybody else should learn. If I'm going to reach a different people group, I better stop thinking that I have a name for myself that's better than other people. See what God's doing? He's not just punishing and confusing people to confuse them. He's saying to a people, you are drifting. You are missing the point. You've got to come back. I can't do anything if I don't speak somebody else's language to get along with them and serve with them and get them on the mission of God unless I put myself in a humble state of servitude. So God is not being devious. He is saying, I can't let you go that way. Anything is possible for humans if they put their head together. We have got to get them going the right way. See, God has always tried to build partners, be fruitful and multiply, bless creation. Partners who make not a names for themselves, but partners who learn that the kingdom of God has always been a kingdom of others. 
Y'all see that in the text? I don't see any minds being blown here this morning. I see a lot of minds going, oh. That's what he's doing. It's all the ancient rabbis say that. You say, what God was doing here is not trying to, not just being mean. What he's doing is saying, if you want to learn how to get along, you've got to learn to serve each other. And what you're doing is you're elevating one culture above the rest instead of serving them. See, that's why we're doing friend speak, church family. How many calls have we gotten so far, Ruth? How many people have called asking for free English lessons in town? I should ask you this before instead of calling you out in front of everybody. 15 to 20 people of our individuals have already called up here asking, hey, can I sign up for free English lessons? It's awesome. We haven't even started yet, and we've got 15 to 20 people. We have 15 people in this church who have trained and volunteered to say, I want to read with somebody else on Wednesday nights. I want to put myself in a place where I don't speak the language, but in a place of a servant and read the Bible with people in English so I can bless somebody else's life. That's what God's trying to get across at the Tower of Babel. He's going, you guys are, are way off base. Let me make you back into servants. I would challenge you today to think about how that hits you. Imagine Wednesday nights, if that blows up. I'm praying it does, Ruth. Marilyn, I'm praying that it blows up. I'm praying we have 45, 50 people that are like, I wanna learn English better. And they're coming to our building and they're having a meal with us. I'm praying that we have to cancel adult Bible classes because instead of us studying the Bible, we're studying the Bible with people who don't know it. How about that, church family? That our adult Bible classes, all our adults are sitting in there with readers going, let me share with you the gospel of Luke because we are putting ourselves in a place of serving, of learning from you as you learn from the gospel because the kingdom of God has always been a kingdom about others. Love God, love others. You can't love God without loving others. In 2021, I told you those Sepik Ewam people will once again send out missionaries to other tribes in Papua New Guinea. But the story began in 1965 with Marilyn Laszlo and her missionary partner, Judy. Marilyn was engaged to be married to an Air Force captain but she called off her engagement because that pull to be a missionary and to go out on behalf of the Wycliffe Bible Society and bring a Bible and bring the written New Testament language to a people that did not have it was so strong in her heart. So her and Judy canoed into the Sepik Ewam tribe unannounced one morning off of a river. They were the first people with light pigmentation to ever go into that tribe. The people later told them they thought they were ghosts. That's how I feel when I go to the pool. <laughs> the two young ladies set up camp a little bit out of the main village and they tried to begin to build a relationship with the people. But it wasn't before long they quickly discovered that there was not a written Sepik Ewam language. They had studied pidgin 
And they knew pigeon fluently, but pigeon was no good. They were like living in Babylon. Everything they said was misunderstood, whether it was English or pigeon. The Sepakiwon people said, we have no idea what you're talking about. I don't know how they said that in Sepakiwon, but that's what they said. So efforts and conversations were beyond difficult. It wasn't too long into their time, just weeks into their time, not even a month, I don't think, when they awoke in the middle of a night to screams going out through the village of Sepakiwon people. Screams of terror, screams of mourning. A mother and her friends were crying out over her sick 11-year-old boy. He had gotten some sort of infection that was probably easily, easily treatable, but he was lifeless and still. And not knowing any different, the Sepik Ewan people wrapped his body in bark and prepared him for burial. Marilyn and Judy awoke and ran to the village. When they got close to the boy, they could see very easily. And understanding medicine better, that he was not dead. The young man was still breathing, but he appeared lifeless with barely a heartbeat. He was simply in a coma, a fever-induced coma. The girls then began to cry out amongst the noise of the morning, trying to get the people to understand they spoke in English saying, he's still alive. Then they spoke in pigeon saying, do not bury this young man alive. He is still breathing. But their efforts were to no avail. They couldn't understand. They couldn't write. There was no written language. There was no way to get it across. And tragically that night, in the middle of the night, the tribe buried an 11-year-old alive. Marilyn and Judy got back to their tent. They were just completely distraught. Wondering if they had made mistakes, wondering if they had messed up. They were crying. They couldn't even hardly catch their breath. And Judy said in screams and in wails at seeing something she never thought she would see. She said, oh, Marilyn, I can't believe this. How will we ever reach these people? And Marilyn said, I don't know. This is beyond us. Only God can help. And in 24 years since that date, every person in that tribe became a Christian. Because Marilyn Laszlo stayed for 24 years. She took a language with no written. She worked with the people, created an alphabet, then created a dictionary, and then took the New Testament English text and translated it into the Sepik Ewam text and then taught them the gospel. Unbelievable story. But a story that any one of us could fill those shoes of.
Because Marilyn Laszlo just said, I belong to a kingdom where I don't make a name for myself, but I make a name for others. The Sepakiwan people now have a name. They're called children of God. Sons and daughters of God. Isn't that beautiful? That's what's happening at the Tower of Babel. God says, don't build things to yourself. If you're going to be my people, you build for the world. You give yourself away. You be the hands and feet of Jesus. Because the world isn't won by power. The world is won through sacrifice. Amen, church? We know that. The cross is the greatest glory. It's our greatest glory as it's Jesus' greatest glory. We don't find glory in our own achievements. We find glory in saying, let me be like Jesus. If you've drifted this morning, come back. Anybody in here? Let's just, let's just do a real communal confession. Anybody drifted in the last year a little bit? Show of hands. I'll do this. Because <laughs> then I, I was drifted, and then I thought I'd stopped, and then I did it again. So I got to use two hands. You're in good company this morning. You're in good company because you're among fellow drifters. But you're in better company because you're in, you're in company that says, let's go home. Right? Let's go home. It seems that we want to drift till it's time to go back west and go home. We're all prodigals. But when we go west and go back home, we don't find a father who's got his arms crossed going, sorry, house is closed. What we find is a father who's been seeking and looking and chasing and running. And when he finds you coming back, he just says, welcome home. Let's stand together and let's sing.